This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart, and as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback, and I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queros Cami here. This week, we have got a chat with recording artist and drummer, Madam Gandhi, who's got a new album out as of last Friday, so you can get it even right now. Hooray! Also, you know what, speaking of getting things, why don't you head over to saveyourselfbook.com and pre-order my book, Save Yourself, please. Please do it. It's going to be so funny. It it already is so funny. I, I already wrote it. It's already written. Bye! I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still I always have guests introduce themselves. Will you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Kieran. I perform as Madame Gandhi. I often say that I'm a drummer or a musician whose mission is to elevate and celebrate the female and feminine voices. I grew up in New York City playing the drums. Uh, I always thought I would go on more of a traditional track, whether it was um, being in in the political system, working for the mayor's office or the Senate like I did when I was in college, um, or maybe even working on the music side of things at a label, which I did after college. But... The activism and the music uh, manifested themselves in a different way, and now I make my own music. That was a fantastic intro. Sometimes people go, I don't, what do you want me to say? But you, perfectly, like, it. I have so much to pull from. Perfect. Um, The first of which is, I know that you were a drummer, but now you're, you know, you're like the front man. Mm -hmm. Um, And what is that transition like Hmm. from the, I mean, obviously, Drummer's super important. Mm-hmm. At, you're like actually setting the tempo. You mm-hmm. are key to keeping the songs together, you know, yes. to the whole band together. But you're also maybe unsung a little bit. When I was younger, I loved being the drummer because it was the least responsibility. Like even carrying the cymbals was like already too much responsibility for me. You know, I just like <laughs> had to show up and like have learned the parts and play them and go home. You know, I didn't have to do any like band management or writing the lyrics or writing the melodies. And I think, you know, part of the queer identity, too, is that I think I loved that the drums were rebellious and it was like a tomboy instrument and that singing or playing the piano was more feminine and directed towards girls. So I intentionally rejected it. And I love being the drummer. I love being the drummer for MIA. I love being the drummer for Thievery Corporation. Last year, I got to play drums for Kehlani and TV on the radio who and Lizzo, who have been heroes of mine for a while. But it was four years ago when I decided that I had something to say. And that's when I started writing and producing my own music. Mm. Wow. I mean, also you described already having essentially a bunch of lives, but you seem like a relatively young human. How old are you? I'm 30. Yeah. That's a lot of that's a lot of living to have done by 30. I think that's good. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Because you said you worked in the political sphere in college? Yeah. Or in high school? You yep. said high school. No, college. Okay. So I went... I grew up to two fairly traditional Indian parents. We were living in New York City, and my parents always had a really excellent sense of give back in the world. You know, we can't help where we're born or what privilege we've been dealt in this life, but you can help what you do with your privilege. You can step all the way into it and make a difference. And so we were always raised with this idea that some aspect in our life will involve activism. And 
my parents saw that I loved public speaking. I loved theater. I loved student government, these kinds of skill sets. And so my intention was to go to Georgetown University, which I did, and work in the, in the government after graduating. And I did an internship at the mayor's office. I did an internship on the Senate. I mean, it was Obama's White House at the time, so it was an awesome time. Mayor's office like New York City? Actually, I did both mayor. I had one summer I did Bloomberg in mm. New York City and one summer I interned for the D.C. Mayor Fenty. And I have to tell you a very relevant story uh, if you didn't have another question. Do it, please. Yeah. I was going to say that it was the summer of 20, 2008, and I was doing this internship for the DC mayor and my dad was so happy I had this like resume item on my on my job circuit. Yeah, know? that's a huge it's a huge item. Right. And so I remember being like, it's fine. It's, I don't love it that much, but it's fine. And it is, it is a big deal. It was competitive to get in. Now I was leaving the mayor's office one day and there was a huge protest outside the, the mayor's office too, because he was shutting down a homeless shelter to make way for a bunch of condominiums that he was clearly getting paid off for in order to wipe the homeless shelter. It was a very corrupt move. And the DC mayor is known for being one of the corrupt, most corrupt mayors in history at the time. And I remember being like, this is so embarrassing. I feel like I'm on the wrong side of, of history right now. Why am I working for this mayor's office? Even if, you know, it's a good resume item for some sort of like future job that I might want to get when inherently what he's doing is wrong. And I don't subscribe to it. And so I remember taking off my internship badge and going around to the other side and joining this group of djembe drummers who were sitting in the corner drumming to, you know, create energy for the protest. And after we had kind of wound down and I had joined them and they were super happy to have me, they said, sis, you know, the protests are continuing. We're going to 18th Street Lounge and we're going to have a bunch of musicians play and talk about future organizing. And it was really that night that I was like, wow, I would so much rather use my gifts as a musician and as a speaker to influence more grassroots change than to be in the system and participate in so many norms that I don't identify with. And you were already drumming at the time? When yes. did you start drumming? I was eight. I was in New York. I was eight years old. Wow. I I always wanted to drum. I mean, for the same reasons that you talked about. Well, I ended up playing the saxophone. I mean, like, dope. I don't, I don't still, unfortunately, because that is cool, right? <laughs> but when I was a kid, for the same reason that you talked about, it was like school band, you know, pick your instrument or whatever. I wanted drums, but parents were like too loud. So somehow they let me play saxophone, which is also too loud, but, you know, Instruments are gendered just like everything. And so you're eight years old. How did you, how did you decide that that's what you wanted to, was it okay with everybody? Was, was your school okay with it? Were you playing it at home? How did you decide that that was? I was actually at a summer camp that was like for sports, but in the afternoons, all the kids have to choose a lake activity. And I really like didn't want to go in the lake. And so I ran away and I found the theater cabin and I was like, this is brilliant. No one will find me here. I can just chill. And there was a drum set in the theater cabin, but it's super far away. So I was like playing, not really thinking anyone would hear it. And coincidentally, there was a maintenance man in the theater cabin and he was doing his thing. You know, he didn't really care that I was playing the drums. And then he kind of turned around and I thought he was going to turn me in. And then he's like, no, I play drums. I'll show you. <laughs> this, I have seen this movie, classic story, maintenance man becomes drum teacher, and then you go to Georgetown. I've seen this. <laughs> that is seriously what happened in your actual human life? Yes. And did he give you lessons for the rest yes. of the summer? Yes. Fuck! And, that is, and it was so cool, Javier, and it was so cool because... 
uh, the summer camp was cool with it because as long as their kids are accounted for and chaperoned, they don't mind, you know? Right, right, right. So I came back. I was super hype on the drums. And my dad was actually really encouraging. And that Christmas, you know, he was the one who kind of, both my parents bought me the set, but he was kind of leading it. And I always make fun of him to this day because I was like, I was very skeptical of why he was so encouraging. But I realized later he thought it would be an excellent diversity check mark on my college application. You I mean, know? it is. He's it not is. wrong. Yeah. He's so, not wrong. So I was like, you thought that was going to be a phase, you know, to get me into school. And here I am still playing all over the world. So, yeah. But it was it was good. I think, you know, when you have especially your fathers of both parents, and of course everyone has different um, parental arrangements. But in my case, I felt like having the, the father really support me in that lane felt really important. It felt really... Um, it gave me confidence to actually go and do it. Because I think the mother's love is unconditional. You know, she's like, I gave birth to you. Like, I went through pain to give birth to you. Like, I love you no matter what. That's always been my mom's mothering style. Whereas having my dad be like, yeah, go do this, go do that, was was really powerful. Hmm. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I think that is different for everybody. But in my in my experience, hmm. when I was a kid, um, I gravitated to the more masculine things. Mm-hmm. And that was actually... You know, I would think that, like, maybe my dad would be freaked out by that because I come from, like, a very traditional Italian, like, machismo, you know, all that stuff. And I thought that maybe, you know, it's like, it it makes sense to me that maybe he would be like, put on a dress. But instead, um, my dad was actually kind of into that he had a kid that was into more masculine things because my siblings were not my two sisters were not and I actually think that they were it's like in a macho culture I actually was kind of rewarded for Mm. liking the things that were masculine Mm -hmm. because they were better Mm -hmm. like my sister wanted to dance she was Mm -hmm. a dancer she was a ballerina it was like okay she's a ballerina but like you play basketball Mm -hmm. clearly one of these things is more valuable Mm -hmm. in culture it's funny because then eventually when I came out my dad was very much like, there were no signs. And I was like, just everything I've ever been into. <laughs> but if you, just those, just only those things. That's funny. Um, what did you look like at the time? You have, first of all, I'll just say you have a very cool, like, yellow political political sweatsuit. You know, <laughs> that's like, it's a sweatsuit, but it's also making a statement. And, you know, bleached hair and, like, cool glasses and everything. So what did you look like when you started playing drums when you were eight? Um, I always had big black curly hair, super long. It used to take hours to brush in the shower. It was so annoying. I used to love my curly hair, obviously. And then for a long time, I bleached it. And I loved the bleach blonde because I had, like, long curly blonde hair. Um, but over time, as you bleach it, you get shorter and shorter. But I'm growing it back out. It's a mm-hmm. slow process. Yeah, I can't stop bleaching it. I love bleaching it because I love coloring it. Yeah. I have only recently started, I like in the last year, started bleaching my hair. And I like the, for me, I feel like it changes the texture in a really nice way. Because I I want to do a a certain thing with my hair where it kind of goes up. Mm -hmm. Like I want to have up hair. Mm -hmm. But um, I have that like really excellent white person hair where it just wants to go down and <laughs> that's all it wants to do so bleaching has actually been really amazing as a way of like giving me the um like dude swoop that i'm looking for it's perfect it looks great oh thank you yeah it's very you i mean i'm meeting you today but yeah. i feel like it suits your personality very well yeah thank you i feel very good about it too and i feel like 
you know, it's part of that evolving process of figuring out presentation. It's like I never thought bleaching would then be part of it because to mm. me that was always something I was like, I don't like color my hair for whatever reason. I don't know why, mm-hmm. but but anyway, so that's been an interesting I think it part. also has to be the right color. Like I would never – I'm not interested in wearing like blue hair or red hair or like the wrong color. I think for me it was always like yellow and sunset palettes that I love. So I think that makes sense. Yeah. What's that about the those specific colors? What do you think draws you? Oh, I you? love it. You know, my name is Kieran, which in Hindi means ray of sunlight. And so I've oh always been drawn God. to sunset and sunrise colors. Oh, that's beautiful. And it's also fresh. It's like new horizons, new visions, manifesting your dreams, rebuilding the future. You know, it's very positive. It's very hopeful. Right. I definitely think the music and the melodies that I make and the things that I talk about, they, even though they might be critical of culture, I don't try to talk about them in a way that is... Um, aggressive or or angry. Even if I am angry about those things, I will do the personal work to intellectualize my emotions so that when I speak on them, it's with peacefulness and compassion and things like that because I think I'm hurt better that way. So these- well, I want to hear more about that, but first I want to tell you that my name is Cameron and that means crooked nose. <laughs> some of us got sunset, some of us got crooked nose. I don't know. Are you sure is that what those means? Yeah, that's what that means. Well, at least it's an identifier. Absolutely. Also, I have a pretty straight nose. Also, like crooked nose means you're a badass. Like you got like beat up and I got, shit. I got, yeah, I got fucked up, but I but I survived it yeah. because I still have a name. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there you go. You know like it's I mean? boxing style. You yeah, know? exactly. You Thank you for any that. Read proper boxer. Like they don't have a straight nose. That's right. That's exactly right. I'm out here fighting in the world, just exactly totally. like I was supposed to. So you were talking about, um, like, essentially. I mean, I guess greeting struggle with peace. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Obviously, also the name that you chose to... Well, my last name is really Gandhi. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. My name is Kieran Gandhi. What does it feel like growing up with that last name? You know, it obviously, I loved it. I love my last name. I think what's frustrating is that people in the States think Gandhi, like the famous Gandhi is spelled G-H-A-N-D-I. And it's not. It's spelled G-A-N-D-H-I. And so I think that's a... So it's such a surprising thing because to me that name is so famous. How could you misspell it? But I think oh seeing D and H next to each other is not something normal in the English language. So it's yeah. actually a very understandable mistake. Like if you look at the words Ghana or Afghanistan, it's G-H for everything. Right. But I think it is unbelievable how how every day my name is misspelled and people communicate directly to me when in the same body of email they'll spell it, you know, the right way and the wrong way side by side. Um, so I think that's the only negative of having a name that is uh, ethnically complex for Americans to understand. Um, you'd think wow. this would be an easy one, but I think I, it almost humbled me in a way to be more compassionate towards other people's name spellings and really, like, get it right and ask about how to pronounce names and things like that. Mm. I have a name that people often make mistakes around because a lot of times – so my last name is Esposito, and so um, – a lot of times people think I'm Latina and then they think that my first name is Carmen. Mm. And because I do stand up, sometimes it affects how people introduce me. Mm. And so then I have to, um, even now we're like, I am straight up the headliner. Like wow. don't fuck up my name, Same. you know, At least you can do, but, but that happens very frequently. And it's weird because it, it presents you with this opportunity to like shrink and just be like, well, that's what I've been named by this random stranger. Or to correct that person risking 
um, embarrassing them. Mm. And, you know, I cho- I choose to have my, to correct them and risk embarrassing them. But I think that's something that, like, as queer people, we make that choice so, so frequently. Mm-hmm. That thing of, like, do I shrink and get small or do I, like, correct? And also people of color have to make that decision every single day. And it sounds like that's something that you're With talking about, too. With my name, the, the spelling, mm-hmm. I feel there is no forgiveness. I feel very boundaried about it. I do. It really bums me out. And I think because I, I know it affects me and affects my mood, I do assert the boundary. You can't put that on my name is spelled wrong. This is fine, but my name is spelled wrong. I don't let it go. Yeah. Um, because like, it's a poor people have to know that. I'm like, how hard is it? You just copy and paste. Like, you don't even need to spell it yourself. You just right. Google it. So Also, it autocorrects. Your last name Maybe. is so famous. I think it actually autocorrects. I don't think it does. I don't think we would have this problem. If okay. All right. No, actually, that's already a cool thing. It's like just hit up Apple like make some homies at Apple and be like, can you just pre-program this into the autocorrect? This should be, this yeah, should be a be thing. That's super tight. I never thought about that. That's actually a really good point. I'm sure it's evolving in that direction. They're adding more and more words to the entire like right. system. But that, that, that I'm boundaried with, but... Um, and pronunciation I am boundaried with, but there's definitely other things. I was trying to think because I feel like mm-hmm. boundaries is something that I'm constantly working on because I think we as women and femmes, at least in my case, we always want to come off as likable and create like a healthy and warm and safe env- like working environment for other people. But I'm also learning how to make sure that I am boundaried so as that so as I can operate to the best of my ability in the space. I don't even think I've ever heard anybody use that as a verb. Mm. Boundaried? Mm. I am boundaried? Mm-hmm. I've never heard that. Oh, that's interesting. I think that's so funny because I feel like that's such a common conversation in my circles these days. That's funny. I don't know what circles you're in, but those sound like circles I should potentially <laughs> spend more time involved with. Um, I think it's— I, I certainly certainly hear about it in a noun, um, and I think that the verb actually makes it— um, I really like that the active nature of that. It's cool. Yeah, that's a good point. It's proactive. I think one thing that I learned that's wrong is like if you try to be sweet and like loving and then everything from the beginning, you know, with people I'm hiring or people I'm collaborating with and you're trying to be like kind and nice and whatever. And then when you're frustrated or you need to assert a boundary, it seems um, personal or it seems upsetting or it seems out of anger. That's the dynamic I'm trying to avoid. So how can I be firm and boundaried and honest with the things that I want and I need from the beginning so they don't have a personal connotation to them. And that's what I'm trying to get better at. Yeah, I totally understand that. I mean, I think for me, I I don't know. People tell me that I'm intimidating or um, I just am I, I'm very loving, warm person, mm. but at work I really know what I want mm-hmm. and I'm very specific. And people love that. People find that to be the most refreshing quality when you're just right down the middle. Like, this sucks. That's bad. This is good. This is awful. I hate this. I love this. Like, people actually find that super refreshing. <laughs> it's true. I, that's, I mean, I hope that that's true. I guess I've found that I have heard a little bit from people sometimes that there's like, that it's scary, that they mm. find it scary. And, and then I want to know, what's your experience of life that this is a scary thing for you? Because there's a lot of really <laughs> scary things out there, but like, just me knowing what I want, I don't think is one of those Amen. things. But um, I don't know. Actually, can I just ask you a side question? Because I don't know the answer to this. And you can feel free to tell me to go fuck myself. How 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 popular is your how popular is the name Gandhi 
in India? I don't I know the answer like, to that. I also answer this question by saying it's similar like a Kennedy, where it's not like only one Kennedy. Sure. But there's not so many Kennedys as there is maybe Johnson or like a more common last name. Got it. Yeah. So that is a perfect answer. <laughs> what a, Thank you. What a great illustrative answer. It's perfect. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I got it. Got it. Jamie Kennedy exists. He's not a Kennedy. Understood. Yes. Understood. Yes. Cool. Okay. Okay. So then you were, um, I want to go back to, you had this experience that you were talking about where you like essentially crossed the picket line and joined mm -hmm. the drummers mm -hmm. and then you were off and figuring out what you might want for yourself. Did yeah. you put that into action at that point? Or what? I did. Do you know the band Thievery Corporation? Yes. That's when I started playing with Thievery Corporation because the where that rally went that night was a lounge called 18th Street Lounge in D.C. that is owned by Thievery, and then they put their touring band as the resident reggae band every Wednesday. So I started sitting in every Wednesday on congas and made friends with that community and had my own show drumming and DJing on a Sunday. And then they had needed someone to fill in on percussion for one of their shows, which ended up being Bonnaroo. And so as a 21-year-old, <laughs> sure. yeah. So as a 21-year-old, I'm like playing for the first time. My biggest concert, which was Bonnaroo with my favorite band, Thievery Corporation, was like a dream. It was unreal. And when I tasted that, I was like, no, this is the life that I want. I don't want to be in an office. I'm always late. I'm like the worst intern. Like, I don't want to be on a fucking... You have to pay attention where you're excelling and pay attention where you're not excelling. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Bonnaroo, Jesus. That is a, I mean, that's a funny first. It was amazing. It's like so your first gig. Yeah, <laughs> your exactly. First gig. Exactly. So once ah. I left, once I left Georgetown, I had graduated. I remember I was like, I got to work in the music industry. Like, this is perfect. I got to use my skill set. I was a math major. I was a women's studies major. I was a political science. I did a bunch, but I used those and I got my first job in the music industry at Interscope Records as their digital analyst. And I knew that I wanted it. You know, I think that's really it. I came correct. I came early. I did extra work. I created value for myself and they hired me and I got this really cool first job for two years out of college. That's amazing. Also, I'm just imagining, you know, it's really wonderful when you happen to hit a thing that you know you want at a time when people are looking for it. Mm. Because I think there's a lot of times, you know, there's certainly... It's certainly still true that sometimes folks are not looking for people like us. Mm -hmm. But I sort of arrived in L.A. Like, I moved here, I don't know, eight years ago, I guess. And the moment I moved here was, like, sort of the first moment anybody was looking to put anybody queer in anything that wasn't mm. that L-word. Like, literally, like, a <laughs> lesbian had essentially never been on TV wow. prior to that. Because when Ellen came they out, she essentially out. stopped acting. Like, that's she just had to fully transition and just host stuff and there and besides the l word like it was nobody was really i mean this is just eight years ago but nobody was really like out and also acting that wasn't really a thing but i like showed up in town and at the time i had like a very gay haircut that was like long on one side and people i thought people were gonna be like get the fuck out of here but they were like oh would you like to be in our movie because we need it to look a little more queer and i was cool. like oh this i have this haircut and they were like great so that that to me is i'm thinking about i mean if if you got that job right out of college that's around the same time i'm talking about yeah. which is eight years ago mm -hmm. or whatever yeah yeah and so you know, I'm imagining that not only are you capable, but you also happen to like, you know, the stars align and you're yeah. the, the right person for that time. Yeah, definitely. And I remember I did that job for two years and you're right. It was a really cool time to be in L.A. I really enjoyed my two years there. 
And after two years, I was like, you know, what's next? I'm hungry. Like, I don't know if this data analyst job is going anywhere. People, um, there's not so much mobility at the record label because people really do stay at their positions. They love their positions. They're not moving. Um, and I also remember feeling a bit jealous of my friends who were touring as the drummer for some big band or the sax player for Katy Perry or whatever it was. And I was like, that's really what I wanted to do. You know, I I got a job at a record label and I'm grateful, but the truth is that I want to be playing my music. And so I remember thinking kind of two things. One is I want to go to the next level of myself as a music industry thinker. And so I started applying for my MBA because my boss had an MBA. A couple other people at the record label did. I thought if I go get my business degree, I can come back into the industry as a more senior leadership position. Maybe like be signing more queer bands, more feminine bands, more like feministy bands, you know, not ones that are perpetuating all of the misogyny and all the music videos that I would have to analyze. And the other side of me was like, I want to drum for a big artist. And... MIA was signed to Interscope at the time, and I ended up getting picked up to to go and be her touring drummer for the How fall did that of happen? 2013. I remember going into a marketing meeting, and after Maya had left the meeting, we had had like a cool moment. She was cool with me. You know, she saw that I was another brown girl in the room, and she left the meeting. And then I remember asking Diana Cass, who was her product manager at Interscope, like almost in a cheeky way, you know, like MIA could really use a drummer in her live show, maybe somebody female, maybe somebody Indian. Yeah. And uh, Diana was like, all right, cool. Like make a video and I'll pass it along to her. And she really did do that in good faith. And Maya ended up responding directly to me in an email and was like, this is really sick. I'm not actually thinking about the tour just yet, but we'll hit you up when we do. And I was like happy with just that, you know, I was so inspired that she even watched the video. And then I ended up getting into Harvard business school and I'm getting ready to move to Boston. And then the tour does hit me up and they say, well, let's go. And the dates of the tour were the same as my first semester in business school. So I ended up doing both. What? Yeah. Wait, what are we hang on a second? First, I want to just say uh, what I'm noticing about your, your stories so far is that um, you seem to know how to put yourself directly in the path of like the right person, which is also just something that is, you know, really impressive. And I think that like none of this is an accident. You know, mm. you, you have to be very strategic to do the jobs that we do. Mm. And I think we don't talk about that very much because we talk about like how hard it might be when everyone else in the room is white or in your case, or it might, you know, like everybody's a dude and mm -hmm. they're all doing mm -hmm. like offensive gay material and then you have to walk out after them. You know, like we, we totally. talk about that, but... I think we don't talk so much about um, how, like, putting yourself in the path of the right person. Like, I don't know MIA, but, like, from a distance, I could imagine, like, oh, that's exactly the right person. For me to want to drum for. for you to want to drum totally. for. Because, she, because not just because of, like, who she is, but I because she seems like the kind of person who would have an openness yes. toward that. and not so industry. She likes yes. to talk with people on a one-on-one, -on -one, like, inspired yes. level, for sure. I think the other thing, and I'm glad that you're bringing this up, because it does tie exactly to the very intentional theme of the album that I'm dropping on Friday. The album I'm dropping on Friday is called Visions. And I called it that because, for me, anytime I have achieved anything like this in my life is not from too much, like, you know, digital side of the brain programming and strategizing. It's more when I spend time on myself dreaming, 
truly looking inward. You oh, know? I love that. Yeah, really. I can't tell if you're making fun of me or if no, you're being I'm serious. No, I'm serious. Because I don't make fun of people. That's just not even my thing. You so lay it up. You're not paid to uh, get on stage and do that. Oh, no, no. I get on the stage and I make fun <laughs> of myself. You're misunderstanding <laughs> the job guys, of the stand-up comic. Actually, I'm so happy <laughs> that you make that distinction because that's the problem that I have with so many, especially of the cis white men who get up on the stage because they're making fun of everyone but themselves. And it really rubs me the wrong way. Oh, no, girl. So, I'm your hero. I'm trust me. I'm up. I'm, you yeah, I'm, up, I'm up there uh, just talking about my own life Hell and yeah. trying to make people happy. Amen. Amen. Yeah. And that compassion and empathy is like what it's all about. But yeah, visions, I, I, I'm glad that you identify with because, you know, uh, y'all are only listening on a podcast, but you gave me like a huge smile when I said that. And I really appreciated that. But yeah, I think every time I've spent time by myself and been like, what makes me happy? What sounds awesome right now? What sucks right now? What doesn't feel good? What can I get rid of? What's giving me anxiety? And what makes me feel happy and lighthearted? Because when we feel good, you're able to do your purpose on the earth. People feel guilty to feel happy. That Those are the wrong things. Guilt is a wasted emotion. If you feel guilty, go and do something with your privilege, you know? Fuck! <laughs> I didn't realize this was going to be the reckoning that it is, but it really is. Shit. Yeah, that's good. I'm so, excited about your album. Thank you. I so got a chance to listen to it. They sent it to me. Good, good. Thank you. Yeah. Whoever, I don't even know who they is. Susie. I got, it was forwarded through several humans and it got to my phone and then I, I, I queued it right up. Lovely. And it was great to listen to. Yeah. It's about looking inward so that you can be your best self outward so that you know what it is you're even driving towards. And for me, I remember thinking, I was like... What's the craziest win right now? Like, okay, I get into the top university that I want to get into, and I drum for the top artist who I think is the top artist. For me, MIA was my hero. Schedule-wise, where were you even living? In, like, a so bus? Wild. I was um, at Harvard, and I remember I was so blessed because all of the tour dates were, A, on weekends, and they were one-off gigs. So it was oh, wow. fly to London on the Friday, come back in time for class Sunday night fly to Poland, come back, fly to Mexico City, come back, fly to LA, come back. I mean, it was so dope. Like I remember on the LA show, the last flight out of LA was 1140 and the gig was supposed to end at like, you know, 1015 or whatever. Cause it was an earlier set time and we were late obviously. And I just literally left once the paper planes had finished. Cause that's our closing song. And my friend pulled up on the alley behind the, uh, there's a venue in downtown LA that we had played at the Bellagio or something like that. And there was the Belvedere Theater, something with a B, the Mayan Theater. And she pulled up behind me and I hopped in. We went to the airport and I made it back in time for class the next day. So it was like that for Did semester. you get your MBA? I got it. Shit. I got it. Graduated and in time. Let everything. me ask you a follow-up question. Did you say frequently to your classmates' faces, um, just want you to know, I was drumming with MIA in this Poland weekend. this weekend. But like, honestly, it's great to see you, and like, I hope yeah, you had a really nice time with so whatever funny. you did. I know whatever networking event you were at. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that was part of it. I think I didn't feel FOMO. I think I knew my intention with business school was really more about getting the skill set of leadership and whatever the training was. So my work was really more in the classroom, whereas for a lot of folks, their work is more in these kind of networking situations. So they because they're the trying jobs. to get that job exactly. Yeah. So I understood my intention, so it kind of worked. And then I think one interesting dynamic that did happen a lot in business school is that I almost felt um, tokenized for being the drummer for MIA. In the beginning, of course, I loved it because it was even brand new for me. So I appreciated that sort of uh, 
like that symbol in my in the eyes of my classmates. But I don't think they realize that for the most part, I had a very normal traditional apples to apples growing up experience. I went to a private school in Manhattan. I went to Georgetown University. I graduated top of my class at Georgetown, and then I had a very normal you know, nine to five type job at Interscope Records um, after school. Now it's different because I'm a funky person and I was the music industry, but I think that was also part of my time feeling like, no, like don't tokenize me as some other, you know, person because that's not quite it. You know, I want to be honest with my identity. It's it's a mixture. Sure. I mean, I get that. I And it is it. I don't know. This is just, I'll just speak from my experience. I find that like, People that don't do the exact same job that I do, um, I tend to really get along with Mm. because there's not competition. Mm -hmm. Same. And so I really like people that work outside my field. Mm. Um, And I also am a really normal person. Mm -hmm. Um, But sometimes my job is not normal Mm. or normative, you know, and it comes with like weird side perks or I'm like super tired because I've been traveling around all the time. Like I... I introduced somebody that works in books into a social – I was like – I like had some dinner a couple – this is what I always think about when something like this. I was like – I had, was at some dinner, and I was in Provincetown, Massachusetts, and it was a lot of like people that are in the entertainment industry were at this dinner. But it wasn't like a businessy dinner. It was just people trying to have fun. Yeah. But it was enough different people that were like – had had big experiences in their lives that the thing that we started talking about the most was our Delta medallion status. And I had brought this friend who's like, who's a, who works in publishing, like book publishing, who was like, that was the most insufferable dinner I've ever been to in my entire life. Like everybody was just talking about their medallion status over and over again. And I was like, I was like, no, no, I know. But here's the thing. Like, it's a badge of honor. All the people at that table travel so much and we can't relate to anybody because it's like my closest friends that I went to college with, like I really, really like them. They think I'm different, you know, like like I go to, you know, see them when I'm in town in their city playing a show and I'm like, what do we, like, let's talk about our families or whatever. And they're like, let's talk about a book that you have coming out or whatever. You know, it just wow. feels, I think it feels more glamorous, yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah. And so anyway- to be around a bunch of people that were all talking about like a thing that that we could all understand that's like bougie and stupid mm. and over the top that even felt like a relief i sometimes don't i guess this is all a very long way of saying i sometimes don't know how to talk to people mm. i sometimes feel tokenized even by myself i mean do you that's not true. feel that now like how do you feel in your group of friends that all use boundaried as a verb and are apparently like cool like that's a very cool the circle thing is definitely cool and i think everyone in the circle also is really down to work like i think we are a good team it's a mixture of like work and have, and hanging out like creative Word. collaborations and getting shit done but yeah it's a good question about tokenizing i think that's why i've always loved living either in new york or in la i think I, we feel lucky i feel lucky to be in spaces that are so forward thinking and and future forward and pro at the same time it's like sometimes you get stuff that's like so indie and yes it's like really future forward but then there's no budget there's no production there's no nothing you know right so diy like we're duct taping shit together it's like i'm trying to evolve past that how do we marry the two in a way that's really like forward and i feel lucky because i've been calling that energy into my life and then working with people who know how to use top gear and top equipment but understand that i'm trying to do something with an indie budget and they rise to the occasion I understand what you're saying. I mean, especially if you're a queer person and you're doing everything indie. I mean, number one, oftentimes you're going to have more control, which is great. 
but you're also going to be fucked because you're not like competing with the big dogs. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And I think that's that's something that I'm thinking about right now. It's like, okay, so I'm making all these incredible music videos, but now they're so good. I'm like, okay, wow. So do now I look at advertising dollars to buy advertising on YouTube and Mm. Facebook and all these things to drive traffic to the videos because that's what everybody's doing to get these millions and millions of streams. Like there's no way organic doesn't do anything right now. And and so then you're like, well, I'm just, you can't just pump an absorbent exorbitant amount of money into something. Like it's just. How do you make that decision? Like in your, how are you, what are you thinking about in that area? If you're saying organic does nothing right now, then what, what does do something like? How do you even spend that money or? It's a good question. I think it's about sharing it with people who resonate with it so much that they want to share it with their friend. I do still believe that quality above everything is is the best, especially because all the people with music video budgets, what are they doing behind the scenes? They're putting together their mood boards and referencing all the indie dope shit. You know, they're like, let's do this and let's do this, but with a budget. So sometimes I like feeling like at least the stuff that I'm making is inspiring the larger thing forward. Here's the other thing I'll say about that. So you're talking, when you're saying the millions and millions of views and all these ad dollars and stuff, you're also talking about the, like, 10 people at a time that get all of that focus. Exactly. Like, it's it's just 10 people up there, you know? And and there are a shit ton of jobs, like, here. Well, I mean, mm. I'm doing stuff with my hands, which is very helpful for the audience. But, but I think oftentimes we talk about success or even culture just looking at like the 10 top people or even sometimes five or three that are like marketed to us, but you can have a very successful and impactful career and be like in the tier just down from there. Mm. Um, and oftentimes that's just because the investment made in you isn't the same. Mm. And that's actually not something that anybody can control. You can't control the investment made in you. You can only control your investment out into the world. So if it's all these ad dollars that are like, you know, like making Ariana Grande's mm. videos rise to the front, then like, what about the videos that are organic? Like, yeah. do you shoot for that? Is that then what you shoot yeah, for? The so. tier of what actually is organic? Yeah, I think so. I think that's a great question. I think for me, um, Ani DeFranco is someone who actually really inspired me. Her model was excellent. Like, obviously, I don't know what the modern day version of that is, but Ani was a Libra like you and was putting out music all the time. And it worked because she was talking about things that were happening culturally and politically and then putting out music that that sort of soundtracked these activist things that she was talking about. And that's fucking rad. Like she has fans who have been fans for 20 years because there wasn't I'm sure there was label money, but it was it was indie, you know, it was mm-hmm. honest. It was organic. So if someone fucked with her in 1990, they still fuck with her now. Whereas all these kids who are coming up, the industry inorganically injects money into the project and then the song goes to number one but it dies just as quickly as it rose to fame and it's not fair to the artist either because they don't know that they don't understand that like shit moves so quick and as quickly as you rose to fame is as quickly as you will fall into depression yeah it's tough i feel that way especially looking at um young women like whenever somebody is able to somebody like beyonce i literally i i just am like i don't know how you are at all okay. You yeah, know, like, like mental health wise. Yeah. But I think anything. she does protect boundaries. She is boundary. That's right. She's a boundary Virgo and definitely protects her energy. And I really do think that's why they don't make so many public ex- um, appearances or post things too often. It's like, we're going to do one big project and we're going to like 
you know, not be public in between those big projects. But how she figured out how to do that between like 16 and 26. Yeah. Because that's that real time, you know, like she. I don't think she did it between them. I think she experienced the negative that we're talking about and then somehow now. Learned the lesson and applied it. Yeah. And I think she's one of the lucky few. Mm. I think she has her parents involved too. I think that makes a big difference. I think when you have your family, you have real people involved. That makes a huge difference. Like it has to be real. Artistic siblings too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look at, uh, I spoke at a really powerful mental health panel alongside Avicii's father. Avicii killed himself last year. Right. And Avicii's father and 12 other people were on a panel. We were all talking about how do we maintain mental health while on the road so that you feel happy, that you don't feel like this is all fake. Well, I want to go back to, because I think this actually ties into what you were saying earlier when you were talking about the music that you make and just listening to your album um yeah because it is you know the stuff i heard i didn't make it all the way to the end because i literally got it like five seconds before this the so i'll just speak about the stuff i heard which was very political like you're mm-hmm. saying but like um yeah i mean you said political but not angry i mean i will say it's like you're not like spitting your lyrics you're kind of saying them and but they're intense you know they're like very um on the nose you're really saying what you mean there it's it's like it's not it's not full of analogies no. it's like you're like saying here's a full sentence that i actually mean that's like yeah pretty intense yeah. And, and political um that's but then it's delivered in a musical way musical <laughs> Percussive way. way yeah and also but also like because I think about when I think about that, I think about like a like a rapper who's like like yeah, like a conscious rapper. I don't want like to be so in that. like so hard. hard. Their arms are going. I don't know. Yeah, like yeah, a yeah. hard delivery. And the thing is that everyone has to be honest to who they are. Like I think if I hadn't, if I don't continue my ongoing personal practice of like meditation and understanding why something upsets me, or understanding how to intellectualize my emotions, or analyzing different like issues in the world that bum me out i would probably be making more angry music but Mm. making angry music doesn't feel like me i like being happy i like being joyful i like being pure i like like working out and eating clean like if in my ideal scenario i don't look like i am doing those things now because i got an album release coming out but in my ideal world those are when i feel my happiest so that's the kind of music that i'm trying to make and then i think with the album i like saying things right clearly through the nose i don't like being highbrow i thought it was really powerful to learn from the 2016 election that the conservative party actually saw like the democrat party as the liberal elite and see it as condescending and that was the first time i ever understood that i always thought democratic party is like free and liberal and hippie and like not necessarily going to like super highbrow educated places you know but that was the first time where i thought oh yeah like northeastern you know, liberal arts schools and like, you know, prestigious colleges are mostly kids who are a Democrat identifying and they have a condescending attitude with their political viewpoints. And I was like, that's something that our party can't, if if we have to align with a party, we can't make that mistake. Mm. So I do want my lyrics to be a little bit more literal than so, uh, so highbrow and and convoluted. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I'm pointing out the delivery too, because it was like surprising, actually. Mm. I, I, you know, I mean, I think about like where rap comes from, for instance, and it it's comes from an angry place mm. because it comes from oppression. Oppression, of course. So you, 
we're angry about being oppressed. Like, you know, sometimes For at sure. the beginning, especially of a movement, like you have to fight back. You have to literally fight back. True. Um, and there always has to be a part of the segment of the of the overthrow that is literally at arms. Right. Um, and so I'm just thinking about what you're doing. And I, I mean, I hate like it's annoying that we don't have better terms, but I will say that's also a lot of women that have been operating in the sphere of like a rap or electronic music or anything, even in that have, I think competed with that same angry place. It's like about like, I don't know, even like anybody from like Lil' Kim to Nicki Minaj, it's all like about like sick burns. It's literally, you know, it's like about like diss tapes and stuff like that, like back and forth. And it's like, anyway, my point is, um, there's something a little bit like feminine about what you're doing. And I, um, that I realized I'm not super familiar with. Hmm. Like even Lizzo, who I think very much embraces her femininity is, you know, hers is still like, get away. Like her topics are so different than yours. You know, clearly hers are like, I'm fine without you. I feel great about my body, you know, and you're talking about like a large, larger political. I feel very understood. And when you're ready for me to talk, I'm ready. Yeah. So um, anyway, speak to me about this. Because this is exactly it. I don't know if... I am. If you pick that up on your own, that makes me feel very. I understood. didn't read a damn thing. That, that makes was me listening to music. Really good. That makes me feel really good because everything that you just described is so intentional. I do feel that many of these fields, like rap, like hip hop, like EDM, have been created and led by men. And that's not a good or bad thing. It's just a fact. It's like when we when people ask me after I give a talk, like, hey, Kieran, how do we get more women into hip hop? How do we get more femmes and queer folks into, you know, CEO positions? I'm like, listen, I'm not interested in us going where the men have already gone. We have to go and create our own genres, our own spaces, our own companies, because you see all of these structures were set up by men for men, thereby rewarding masculine traits of behavior and leadership. So if we try to participate in those spaces, of course, we're going to have to masculinize in order to be even considered part of that genre. And then, of course, we're going to fall short because unless you are fully in your masculine, that that performance of masculinity might not be authentic to who you actually are. And for me, do I have some moments of my masculine? Of course. Do I have some moments of my feminine? Of course. What my project seeks to do is really define and reiterate feminine styles of leadership as something that is desirable and aspirational, as opposed to something that we are trying to constantly reject. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I, I certainly relate to that in the field that I'm in because you're the the more like a, I mean, like I a wish bro. we had better terms, but we don't. Like the more like a man you're doing my job, mm-hmm. the, the better you're doing my 100%. job, you know, in terms of how people are viewing what's going on. And it's really... It's really intense to come in and try to do a new thing. I agree. People it's don't. Hard. People don't. Um, because there's no framework for you for you to operate when you're defining the lane and the music simultaneously. Yeah. Even you know earlier in my stand-up career, I would be around dudes who would be upset um, that women. Like I started in Chicago, and there were some dudes who would be upset there that women didn't go out every single night, all night. But uh, some women in our scene also had kids. So they had to um, be at home taking care of their kids. We don't even think about the way that, like, division of labor, in fact, uh, not infects. And we don't, I don't think men, we're not really in a place where men are, like, aspiring to be stay-at-home dads. Now, at the same time, 
I think the issue with that is that we we're presupposing that that comes with oppression. You know what I mean? Because being a stay-at-home mom, like in the 50s and 60s, did come with oppression. You were not as skilled as your male counterpart husband was. You weren't being paid to the same extent, all these different things. So I, I think it's almost about saying like technology allows us to work from home. Technology allows us to participate in the raising of your own child. Like You shouldn't as a man feel emasculated because you spend time with your fucking kid, nor should we reward that. You should, as a grown adult, want to do that. Awesome. Let me ask you this question. Friend, this album coming out, I actually don't know the answer to this. Have you headlined a tour before? No. How do you feel about, how do you feel about that? I feel really excited. I feel grateful. I feel happy to work with people who are powerful in the industry, like my agent at Paradigm, Amy Davidman, who believe in me and who are pushing me and trying to make things happen. And I think it's super badass to put a tour together. And I got the two people who I wanted to do the tour with me, who are Milk and Jarena DeMarco, because they share my same passion for elevating and celebrating feminine voices and making really dope art um, with a sort of indie punk rock mentality. And I, I, I love what they're doing and I can't wait to do this tour. And I have an all, all, uh, all-female live band and hmm. it's super dope. But though it's amazing because so many folks now um, are actually really coming out as, as gender non-binary or gender non-conforming and saying, you know, my preferred pronouns are they, them. So I, it's not even that my band is an all-female band. It's really more about folks who are rejecting gender conformity, conformity to any extent. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm excited to come see you. I told you I'm going to come see you in December. Thank you. I know Milk. I just did some shows with uh, with her this last week. And um, listeners might know her from her, her like, big song, Quiet, went viral during the Women's March, which is amazing. She plays that, like, I just did this big theater thing with her, and she plays that song. I did it with her last year, too, and it's She's an incredible performer, mm-hmm. but also sometimes I feel judgmental of my own like cheesiness or emotional connection to something. Mm-hmm. Like I want to be like, there's a part of me that wants to be over that song. Like there's a part of me that wants to be over like the women's mar like, because especially like I, I, there were so many problems with it. There were so many people left out. There were so many, um, everyone says that, but I was fucking there and I didn't see anyone left out. I saw a sea of every type of shape, body, identity, mm-hmm. ability, ethnicity, religion. I mean, of course, the only criticism that I can see is that much of the organization's style drew from the style of Black Lives Matter, where we used hashtag culture to pull people from behind their phones and into the streets. I think definitely the Women's March saw the effectiveness of that tool and leadership, especially in this sort of fourth wave of feminism that we're in that does have social media. Maybe that wasn't credited properly, but I think that's that is that I think is real. I think that thing that you just said is what's is what felt so is for sure. that's the thing that I think felt strange about it was women flooding the streets, you know, then hmm. and where and where were we before? Mm. You know, and like there I did yes. I felt some self judgment on that. Yes. Um you know, where I was like, where the where the fuck was I? I mean, I sure like I was like posting all the right shit, mm-hmm. and like if I was in a town like in Ferguson or something like y- that. You know, I mean, course. I was actually was in where the fuck was I in Missouri? I was oh, in Missouri doing a show. Like I wasn't at I was in Ferguson, but I was in I think Columbia, Missouri, and there had been like a noose on campus, sure. and they were wondering if we should cancel the show, and I like went anyway. You know, I mean, I was like, I was trying to figure out how to be an ally. This was like also at a time when I was like. 
am I, do I kneel at the beginning of a show? Like, sure. is that helpful? You know, like just trying to figure out what, what are the things that are actually helpful? I think what's authentic, man, you know, that has to the extent that we can be authentic. It's so interesting because I'm even analyzing on my own music videos. Mm. What's the representation that I'm having as someone who talks so critically about these issues. And I had a really excellent conversation with one of my directors about this. Cause she's like, dude, no, like you don't want to be hiring people to to like tokenize them and to show that you represent them in the music. There has to be a happy balance where these are actually people that you fuck with, like that you guys are actual 100%. friends. And I loved that like r- reminder because it does have to be real. Like, cause so many of my friends are of different gender uh, gender identities or uh, different abilities. You know, two of my friends who uh, right now are in wheelchairs, they came and participated in both my music video and my merch shoot because it was super dope to shoot them. But they're my actual real fucking friends. You know, they came to my birthday and stuff like that. So it's like, that was a good reminder. Like, of course we need to have representation, but maybe the first step is checking yourself. Like, who's your actual circle? Don't just do it so that you get the PR credit, right? Do it because well, you have real... Yeah, I think that's a really community. I think that's a really good point, and I also think that what, some of what you're talking about is also the difference between like the pressure that we put on a person, the pressure we put on a corporation. Because like you as a human, definitely shoot the merch on people that you know. Like that's rad, that's amazing, and also like Target, Walmart, and stuff. Like you can give your money to. I don't. I don't mind if mm. you. <laughs> I will say this. Personally, I don't mind if you have personal relationships with these people if they get your money, you know, because there's also a way in which like a corporation and then that also can't look like that fucking um, and it also can't look positioned and posed and like somebody's being exploited. So it just has to. So but anyway, this is all this is all going back to. Um, that song Quiet, which is which is that when she plays that song, I am transported and I am remembering what we're still working. We're still in the same fucking presidency. I'm remembering what we're still working on on a daily basis and the weight of this, you know, the weight of this moment right now is, um, it's honest, it is inescapable. Sometimes I feel like I have a little bit of a reprieve from mm. it, from that dude. No, but the thing Being is that the, the more House? we talk about it, the more it gives him energy. Like, he doesn't mind what press is said about him. So that's why even if you look at my work, like, I will never mention 45 by name or, like, speak to that because I I honestly feel like by hating him, re- reifies him. It's like Voldemort. Like, you can't say that name because it, like, gives truth to his existence. You know what's funny? I don't use his name either. Yeah. I have never even... I've... Totally. I've never used... I... Um... Yeah, I don't use his name either. And that's smart. But I think I'm I talking think about smart. the the pain of for sure. of uh but we have to look forward 2020. You know my whole theme of visions works cuz it's visions 2020. You know like 2020 vision. <laughs> so all the merch says visions but then we threw 2020 over it says like be proactive. Like hindsight doesn't need to be 2020. Future sight needs to be 2020. Ooh. Shit. All right. You got me. They don't teach you that at a Harvey MBA, you know. That's my, <laughs> you got to you got to learn own, that. Uh, On tour with MIA. Exactly. No, fucking on tour with Madam Gandhi. Like, it's Gandhi school. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. You learn it all through life. And honestly, Harvard Business School is such an interesting place. It certainly is the breeding ground of the capitalist patriarchy, but I wouldn't have had half the experiences that were needed to kind of fuel my work and my mission had I not gone through that experience. So it was, it was, it's always a, as you said, the universe has a larger plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you gotta, sometimes you gotta figure out what the whole, you gotta see the whole map. Totally. And then figure out how to get to the end of it. Well, I have loved talking to you, and I am excited to see you perform. Thank um, you. And hear the rest of the album. And congrats. 
Thank you so much. And before I send you back into this extremely busy week of your life, will you shout out a queero for me, which is a person, place, or thing made you feel like you could be who you are today? Yeah, you know what? I would love to give some love to Anya, Catherine, and Dijak T. Dijak Tai. Um, they are a married couple and the two women who directed and starred in my last music video. I have a song on my album called See Me Through, which is direct, like me singing to my lover, you know, see me through, see this relationship through, you know, let's actually see where this can go. I think in our generation, so many times we are swiping left and right and we don't have to see anything through. You have a job for three months, a relationship for two months. It's nice to actually see how consistent we can be. And they got married, so they're as uh, consistent <laughs> as it gets. And I would love to give them... Um, a shout out because seeing them have such healthy, positive love and be functional as a creative team is something that I definitely would love to invite into my life. Awesome. Well, see you soon on stage. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you.